Hello, you're listening to Meet the Locals, an insider's guide to British Airways destinations, where locals give you the lowdown on what to do, what to see and where to go in their city. My name's Heidi Fuller-Love, and today we're going to meet the locals on the magical Mediterranean island of Malta. Just over three hours' flight away from the UK, the Republic of Malta, situated south of Italy and east of Tunisia, has been inhabited for some 8,000 years and by just about everyone, ranging from the Phoenicians and the Greeks to the Knights of St John and the British. This might be a tiny island, but with three UNESCO World Heritage Sites, countless museums, art galleries and historic monuments, it's rich in places to visit. One of those UNESCO World Heritage Sites is Valletta, the island capital and Europe's smallest capital, which I set out to explore with local-born guide Audrey Marie Bartolo. Uh, Valletta, besides being the capital city of Malta, it was also used as the headquarters of the Knights of St. John. In 1980, it was recognized by UNESCO, so all of Valletta is a UNESCO World Heritage City. And it is a little bit different when compared to other cities in the world, due to the fact that Valletta was planned to become the newly capital and also the newly headquarters. While other cities were formed within the years, Valletta was planned in every single detail. And that is why uh, within Valletta we have also some very beautiful palaces which served as the auberges of the knights. The knights couldn't live with the common people. They were the sons of the Christian noble Catholic families. So they were not allowed to live with the common people and each nationality had its own auberge uh, palaces. We call them the auberges of the knights. We plunge into narrow cobbled streets, lively with playing kids, terrace cafes and street vendors. Here also we come across one of the small marching bands that have been part of the island's tradition since the 19th century. We are now in Republic Street, which is the main street, the busiest street within the whole city of uh, Valletta. Uh, we are uh, precisely facing the National Library, which is uh, also one of the most prominent uh, monuments that we have within uh, Valletta. This is as well uh, Republic Square, also referred to as the Queen's Square, Piazza Regina, because in this square you can see the statue of Queen Victoria, while on to the left-hand side you can see the Grand Master's Palace. So when, when we speak about Valletta, we're speaking mostly of the 16th century, because Valletta was built in 1566, a year after the Great Siege of, of Malta. And it was named after its founder, uh, Jean Parison de Valette. So it is mostly 16th century. But uh, Valletta was also reused at a later stage. So we can see um, as well a huge contrast in the architecture. So although the foundations are mostly uh, 
Baroque foundations, 16th century. Uh, we do also have uh, important monuments uh, which were added at a later stage. Also Malta as a, as a nation, as an island, was ruled by so many people. It's a crossroads of various cultures. I mean, with, within Valletta you can also see uh, British telephone booths, British mailbox. You can also see the traditional Maltese balconies everywhere, not specifically here in, in Valletta, because Malta uh, was ruled by so, by so many people. That is why we have quite of a rich history and it was due to the strategical positioning of our islands that we were mainly conquered. We can't really say that Malta is all the same either. There's a huge diversity. You go to the north, you see one thing. You go to the south, you see something else. You come to Valletta, you see Baroque. You go to Imdina, you see the medieval architecture. You go to Gozo, which reflects a little bit how Malta was in the past, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And the Maltese language, first and foremost, there's nothing documented um, about our language. But we think that it's a Semitic language and uh, it is the only Semitic language spoken in the world which is then written in uh, Latin characters. Yeah. It is also a mixture of other languages. You have a bit of Italian, French, also English. And despite Malta is such a tiny little island, Malta has its own language. And not all Maltese is the, is the same. I hail from the island of, uh, of Gozo. I still speak Maltese, but with my own accent. And even the use of certain words and pronunciation, it does differ quite a lot from one location to another. In 1999, I traveled to Tunisia and they look at you, they, they know it's not Arabic, but they're listening to your language, to Malti, the, the Maltese language, and they still are in doubt. Mm -hmm. They look at you and ask you Arabic and you go like, no, it's Malti. And they are like shocked because they are understanding almost everything, yes. How would someone say hello and thank you? Uh, hal hello is hello, it remains in English. Thank you is grazie. Regarding numbers, uh, numbers are very Arabic. We had tnein, klieta, erba, hamsa, sitta, seba, tminia, disa, ashra. I counted from one to, to ten, by the way. Puffing our way along dozens of steps, we climb, then take a lift to the plant and statue-dotted upper Baraka Gardens dating back to 1661. The effort is worth it for the breathtaking views over the Grand Harbour and Malta's three fortified cities. This is also an ideal spot to take a break, whilst Audrey tells me more about the island's most famous inhabitants. They were originally uh, knights hospitalers in the Holy Land. Uh, they used to take good care of the poor Christian pilgrims who were attacked by the Ottoman Turks. Later on, the Order of St. John became also a military order. They were defeated on the Greek island of Rhodes 
and for seven long years they continued on roaming throughout the Mediterranean Sea in order to find an adequate place to become the new headquarters. Back then we were under the Spanish rule, Charles V, the Holy Spanish Emperor. He was the one, in fact, who decided to uh, rent our islands uh, to, to the knights. Initially the knights were not really pleased with Malta, I have to admit that. The Knights, according to the Knights, Malta was a barren island. The islanders were described as Arabs because of our Semitic language. So they were not really impressed, originally, initially. But then they have noticed the harbours and they said, oh, maybe if we fortify the harbours, maybe Malta wouldn't be that bad. They arrived in 1530, they arrived in Medina. Valletta didn't exist yet. Medina was the capital city back then. Valletta was built at a later stage by the Knights. And slowly, slowly, they started to fall in love uh, with, uh, with our islands. Well, but then we had like a sort of a boom of people all of a sudden started, who, who actually started coming over to Malta. And it was, in fact, from that period onwards that our history was enriched. After that monumental climb, I'm starting to feel hungry. So I ask Audrey to tell me more about the local food. Our national dish remains the rabbit. Rabbit stew or spaghetti and rabbit sauce. Um, what is very popular are definitely the, the pies. And also we do the beef wellington, the Sunday roast, potatoes as well. The British were the ones who introduced potatoes in Malta. In in the various southern villages on Malta, you would find, you would definitely encounter pastizzeria, where they sell pastizzi. Uh, pastizzi are local snacks, it's a savoury snack, um, puff pastry filled either with ricotta cheese or peas. They're very, very famous here in Malta. They are quite cheap, 30 cents, 40 cents per uh, pea cake. Yeah, we love them. It is something that you would find only here on, uh, on Malta. In order to try some of those dishes, I head for local restaurant Tanoni, where I talk to chef Jonathan Brinkhart, who creates traditional dishes using locally sourced sustainable ingredients. One of Jonathan's specialities is his succulent octopus tagine. I ask him how it's made. We get the octopus, it's uh, caught here. We slow cook it for around 12 hours. Then we take the juices that come out from it and we make a, a base stock. Usually the tagine is a, a sauce for chicken, but we do it for the octopus. And then we do some Israel couscous with spices and so on. Over lunch, I asked the head of the tourist board, local-born Karina Dimesh, to tell me more about the Maltese mentality. We're so small, but we are in our heads, we're enormous. Our football, the local football, is something we die for. And the sworn enemies of Valletta is a town called Brikukara. And if you go to the football ground, the usual, also, the usual chant of the Burkukara supporters for the to, you know, anger the Valletta supporters is, "Who's your father?" <laughs> How would you say that in Maltese? Menu <laughs> 
it's it's a very safe place still a very safe place we still have that community feel you're here you feel sort of calm and it's it is a kids it's a family destination from the lively streets of Valletta I crossed town to the Manuel Theatre to meet with artistic director Kenneth Zamet Tabona I'm seeing it every night and I'm getting very, 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 very spaced out by the whole thing. Because the language is so magnificent. I'm the artistic director of Teatro Manuel, which is one of the oldest theatres uh, still in use, in continual use in Europe. It dates back to 1731. It's had a sort of very checkered history. Today it is the, the uh, National Theatre of Malta. I'm the first artistic director. I've been in love with the Manuel Theatre ever since I was six years old, sat in box six with my grandmother watching the Mikado. <laughs> I fell in love with this theatre and sort of it's been so much part of my life. Um, in 2011 I got the idea of having a Baroque festival. As you've probably seen going around Valletta, Valletta is completely died in the bull Baroque, Baroque city. We, as, as a country, as you know, people, are a very Baroque nation. We're over the top, completely, you know, sort of Latin, very, very dramatic, you know, sort of thing, great fun. Um, just like our surroundings, but we don't realise we're Baroque. And sort of, um, I realised, sort of, why don't we have a Baroque festival in a Baroque city? This was the first one happened in 2013. As they... Um, Thought, saw that the Baroque Festival was a success. Then they entrusted me with the opera, with the annual opera, which I have augmented into four. And, <laughs> um, and then, of course, then into drama and everything else. Now I do, you know, basically everything. <laughs> so. The Crucible, we've been talking, Sean Bahadjar and I, the director and also the director of Teatro Malta, have been talking about the Crucible for the past three or four years. Um, I had seen it in the 80s in the National Theatre in London and I remained very, very impressed by it. And I said, well, you know, we must have this sort of drama at the theatre. So this is the first, the first holy Manuel Theatre production. I would imagine I'm considered to be a bit of an enfant terrible, even <laughs> at my age. I find that art must be alive. Valletta is alive. It is a living city and therefore a Baroque festival must be a living festival. Kenneth isn't the only person bringing life back to Malta's old buildings. At the Casa Rocca Piccola I meet the Marquis de Piro who has made it his life's work to conserve his family home. All the other houses like us now are banks and offices and shops and if we did what paid us we'd become one of those banks or offices or shops. But we have got a sentimental attachment here. When you come to Malta to see some things which are Maltese, you see a lot of things connected with the Knights of Malta and perhaps not enough of local aspiration and pretension and taste and bits of, you know, bric-a-brac too. Um, and this house offers just that for you. This is real, this has a family living in it. It's as old as Valletta, it's one of the earliest houses we have. It's called Piccola because it was the first house of the Admiral in, in the new Valletta. Then the Navy grew very big and the Admiral went into a bigger house. You can see some members of the family here. This is your family? Yes. yes. Um, you see one brother and four sisters 
And the brother has changed very marginally, as you can see. Um, up we go, father died 20 years ago, mother died only five years ago at the age of 95, she'd be 100 now. Grandmother there was the daughter of an artist called Giuseppe Cali, and he painted in many churches and used her sometimes as his model. We see her as the Virgin Mary in some churches, we see her as a saint. We see her flying through the sky as an angel <laughs> until she married. And her husband is reputed to have said, I don't like going to church and seeing my wife all over the ceiling. <laughs> so I think that's that... Going to church. <laughs> so, well, that's one way. Um, uh, father's mother's important for us on this tour of the house because she, um, um, she was a collector. And she was in love with a third son which wasn't such a good idea. The elder son, the heir, the second one, the spare, third son, go and get a job sort of thing. So it's what he did. He went to university. But after only one year, he was summoned. These were the British at the time. It was the, the empire, even at the university. There was a lot of influence there. And they told him, look, we've been watching you. Do you want to go to Nova Scotia? And if you pass your tests, we make you an officer in a British regiment. He thought it was a good idea, and he did that. He came back in 1899, and he went to South Africa with his regiment to the Boer Wars. And he was the only Maltese man in the siege of Ladysmith, where he nearly died, but he made it back. 1901, he's back in Malta. Granny, whom he loved him, the third son, um, she was waiting for him. He found his elder brother, was grievously ill, he wasn't going to make it. His second brother was becoming a priest and didn't want an inheritance, and so he became the heir. So Granny chose well. Huh? <laughs> she had had quite a good education, and when she collected miniature Maltese silver from the 1700s, she did it with great care. Everything had to be properly marked. These are little vinaigrettes. You can put scent or something into them. This is a collection of um, specs, and you've got buckles for your shoes. Some of these came down in the family. Walking sticks, bits and pieces, couple of snuff boxes, match boxes, and that box there is poudre de riz, rice powder. And there's even a very, very early safety razor. The sedan chair is one of the treasures of the house. This was not made for this family. This was made for a knight of Malta. He came when he was only a boy. He wasn't a knight. Mm. Uh, he came as a younger son whom they could spare. Go and be a page to the grandmaster sort of thing at the age of 12. But at 15, they would normally send them back home. And his name was Nicolas de Vachon. Vache is a cow in French, as you know. And you can see the cow on the coat of arms. We can date it, no problem. 1762. <laughs> Over there is a... Um, an invitation to the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. Father and mother went to Westminster Abbey, very excited by the whole thing. And they sat on these two chairs, the two stools, and afterwards they were allowed to have them uh, as a souvenir of the occasion. The knights were hospitalers, and that was their vocation in life. 
and when they came to Malta and built Valletta eventually it was important to have um, a hospital and they built a very long room for 600 beds and every patient no matter how poor when you spoke to him you had to bow and you had to call him my Lord because Jesus Christ said what you do for the least you do for me which was nice but the knights were sophisticated so this is too easy mm-hmm. let's do something difficult so they decided one bright spark said silver service <laughs> 600 beds everybody on silver will be served and the knights said yes we can do it it, mm. it involved a lot of mm. forming the guild and mm. but they did it mm. and people around Europe started talking and saying the hospital in Malta is very impressive, you know, 600 beds all served on silver. And they said, what are the results like? They're good, they're good, they're good, but the weather's good, that's why. Nobody knew at the time that silver had disinfectant qualities, and doctors will ascertain this now quite happily. Uh, now, Napoleon melted down the hospital silver, he needed coinage for his troops, mm-hmm. but in this house, just by luck we have these. These are the only known set of doctor's instruments to survive in silver from the hospitaller order worldwide. There aren't any more, we don't know of any. They have the marks of the Grand Master, Manuel de Rouen, and the little satchel in the middle was restored by the Victoria and Albert Museum. After a peaceful night at De Velena, a comfortable modern hotel within easy reach of the city's main sites, I set out to discover why Valletta became the European capital of culture in 2018. At the Grand Master's Palace, a few minutes' walk from De Velena, I meet with art historian Giulia Privitelli, who gives me a fascinating guided tour of one of the exhibitions. She starts with the section dedicated to Miro. The, the section to do with Miro, little crisis starts to form in you because the first question you ask probably will be what do these paintings mean, right? Or another very common comment is oh, my child could have drawn this splashes of paint on canvases. But I like to rope in Picasso to save us from this little problem. I mean, Picasso was the same person to say look, it took me an entire lifetime, an entire career to learn how to paint like a child. And that says to us quite a bit on how our biggest challenge as human beings is to really shed away all the preconceived ideas that we might have formed, uh, conditioned ways of thinking, what art is and what it should be, any standard of beauty that we would have created for ourselves. Miro wanted to dismantle all of that. He wanted to really free both himself as an artist um, from structures of the time, especially uh, what Spain had become after the Spanish Civil War. So he wanted to free himself of all of that, but also free the image, free the painting. Now, Miro was actually quite a peaceful person uh, in, in real life. He, he, he always stayed on the periphery. Um, I mean, he lived in Palma de Mallorca in his own kind of exile, uh, working in his uh, garden, you know, planting, just being at one with nature almost. Um, so to create a work that is wounded, because you have this gash run, rushing, running right across the, the surface of the canvas, is to be quite violent. He is here destroying, literally destroying his own you know, his own tools uh, as an artist. But he's telling us, look, you want to know the truth? Are you searching for the truth? Uh, Picasso was searching for the truth in trying to 
capture this beauty. Um, Miro here is telling us this is the truth of what you see, a canvas. And as an artist, we can put markings on this canvas which are an illusion. We can make you see things which aren't really real, uh, which aren't of the flesh. Um, but this, the beauty of this work <laughs> is in what cannot be seen, in the sense that a gash allows light to pass through. And light is the very same thing that allows us to see. Um, so it's this intangible quality, you know, this intangible thing, which is light, that allows us to see the reality that we are so convinced in. And this is where the spiritual section um, of this uh, whole exhibition comes in, where we started with the physicality, the corporeality of Picasso's images and figures into something which looks beyond, you know. Looking no further than my rumbling stomach, I head for Rizette, a fine dining restaurant at Casa Elul, one of the city's very first boutique hotels. Here I talk to chef Andrew Borg about the restaurant's fresh produce-based menu. Um, this uh, dish we've been playing around on and off the menu whenever we have, you know, tuna that speak with sea urchins, it's, you know, We've got as well, again, fish, uh, we have some uh, red bream, we have some summer truffles with it, we have still have some peas. Um, seasons here, summer tend to be quite harsh. So peas and broad beans, we're at the end of them. A yeah. couple of weeks, we won't have them anymore. Mm-hmm. Strawberries are at their peak mm-hmm. now, so um, we have this. We always have um, a milfoy on the menu. We change the garnish ice cream according to the season. Now, last week, we started strawberry and pistachio. Well, there was no spinach on the menu, which is a bit of a shame, as it would have made a good link for my next destination, where I meet site manager Stephen Bonisi. This is, at the moment, the only film set in Europe. It was built in 1979-1980 by uh, Paramount and Walt Disney together. All right, and it was not meant to stay. It was built and filming and wrapped up everything in nine months. But in 1980, the government of Malta at that time said, listen, don't tear it down, we will take care of it. It is a film set, people come, they can roam in the exact footsteps of the late Robbie Williams, who was Popeye in the movie, it was his first ever movie. And um, very interesting, it kicked off his career. People can come here, they can spend a whole day. We have a full-fledged animation program, which starts at 10 a.m. and it leads till the end. Um, There's animation shows every half an hour. The main show, which happens twice uh, a day, is our filming experience because it's a film set. We get all our tours into little costumes, hats, etc. And we film a short movie. Then we have a cinema. They can see themselves on the big screen. Unfortunately, the new generation do not know who Popeye is. So we try as much as possible to keep the Popeye character alive and explain to them the use of spinach, and why Popeye is strong. The, the whole concept was uh, started in the 1930s to get more kids to eat vegetables. We have a cinema showing a documentary of um, 15 minutes explaining exactly um, why Anchor Bay was chosen, why Malta was chosen. The, the ultimate aim is to depict a very poor old fishing village of 1920s era. So they wanted to choose a small bay untouched so with not a flock amount of tourists and locals. Um, they didn't want any sand so um, part of the island was already out of the question. So the ultimate choice was between the Caribbean and Malta and luckily Malta was chosen because of the 
less palm trees, depicting more a traditional, a traditional uh, fishing village. There is also in the same little room, there is also the actual 1980 film going on repeatedly. And all at once I knew, I knew at once, I knew he needed me. Until the day I died. Leaving Popeye and olive oil, I head for my last stop, the tiny village of Seitun, where I meet 77-year-old musician Mikhail Kumbo, one of Malta's leading Arna folk singers, who started singing the country's traditional folk music at the tender age of seven. Okay, he sings. His way of singing is um, telling story, storytelling what he sings, improvisation, right? He's going to sing now. We won't be hearing Anna Tarfat, but Anna Laborlisa, the high-pitched one. And this is something that Mikhail is very renowned of. Um, and Mikhail is able to sing the, the, the high-pitched one. <laughs> You've been listening to Meet the Locals and you'll find contact information for all the sites mentioned in the Meet the Locals fact sheet on British Airways website. Thanks to David Mumford for the music and goodbye from me, Heidi Fuller Love. Remember to look out for Meet the Locals guides to other destinations on your next British Airways flight. I was talking about love, basically. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> your beautiful blue, blue eyes. Sharek, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> And he's actually describing somebody I know. I get fed up of eating, I get fed up of drinking, uh -huh. but only to see you. <laughs> oh, mamma mia, mamma mia. Uh, <laughs> 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 <laughs>